are listening to Program to Chill, a show about business, crime, parapolitics, and esoterica with your host, Jimmy Fallon Gong. This is Premium Episode 16, Novels as Spycraft Part 5, The Paranoia Fulfilled, with Ira Levin and William Peter Blatty. Today I'm recording from the Dakota Apartments, yet again. So you know how in the late 1960s, there was a spree of high-profile political assassinations, and then the suspicious deaths of many of the conspirators and witnesses, like, you know, Jack Ruby, David Ferry, and then around the same time, there was the turn of the counterculture. There was a force of reaction that swept the country. There was the Zodiac killings and the serial killer phenomenon. There was COINTELPRO undermining every progressive group in the country. The anti-war movement fundamentally failed. And Hunter S. Thompson wrote about the wave rolling back across the country. Like, that's what was going on in the late 60s, right? In the words of Joan Didion writing about the Manson murders, she said, Many of the people I know in Los Angeles believe the 60s ended abruptly on August 9th, 1969 ending at the exact moment when the word of the murders on Cielo Drive traveled like brush fire through the community. And in a sense, this is true. The tension broke that day. The paranoia was fulfilled. And in that context, there was not just a wave of repression and reaction, and of course lots of selling out, but there was also a wave of out-and-out witchcraft that swept the country. Ouija board sales hit their all-time high in 1968, that year selling 2.3 million. I will quote from the arch-spook magician Peter Lavenda to speak on this. With the premiere of Rosemary's Baby in 1968, America was on the way to a spat of films dealing with the subject of the incarnation of evil. In Rosemary's Baby, of course, An innocent young woman is impregnated by Satan in order to bring about the birth of Satan's child on earth in a blasphemous recreation of the virgin birth of Christianity. Rosemary brings the baby to term, but it is taken from her at birth, and she is told the baby died. She later hears chanting and the baby crying through the thin apartment walls and discovers the truth for herself. The idea of a Satan of a satanically engendered or satanically possessed child is reprised in The Exorcist, in which the young Reagan is possessed by an evil spirit, an emanation of the ancient Sumerian demon Paizuzu. Again, a child is the focus of evil. Again, evil has become incarnated in human flesh rather than remaining merely a phantom or ghastly illusion. Even more frightening, this film was based on events that had actually occurred. A few years later, the American public would be presented with yet another demonic presence, this time in The Omen, in which a young boy has the mark of 666 on his scalp. He is the devil incarnate again. The 1990s film Lost Souls, starring Winona Ryder as a formerly possessed young woman on the trail of Satan, is another attempt to show the impending incarnation of evil, although this time the vessel is another grown man, appropriately enough a lawyer. What concerns us here at this time, however, is the idea that evil could be incarnated, could be made flesh, and dwell amongst us. Unquote. Let's go through these authors, starting with Ira Levin. They chose- 
gathering of dread and awesome spectacle, each in his hand a candle of black, their faces grave, a death-like mask. The prince is wound, the person of gold, reigning upon his throne, Distant and far remote, the cauldron boil and the fires burn. The evening shadows to figures burn. Bubbling pots of wantons and who was born in 1929 and who and who lived to 2007. He grew up in Manhattan. He was born to Russian-Jewish immigrant parents. His dad was a toy importer. Levin was sent to the Horace Mann Private Prep School in the Bronx. Then he went to Drake University, then NYU. He studied philosophy and English in college, but he wanted to be a writer. I found a lovely article on on Levin from the <laughs> Mises Institute website that discussed his early years. And I quote, Not that money presented any particular problem for Levin. His father, a wealthy toy importer, 
had sent him to Horace Mann, Drake, and NYU. Now he offered to subsidize young Ira for a couple years while he made a stab at becoming a professional writer. If, after two years, he had not succeeded in the attempt, he agreed to come work for his father in the toy business. But his father's subsidy was scarcely necessary at all. Virtually from the moment he walked out of his NYU graduation ceremony, still wearing his cap and gown, Ira Levin was gainfully employed as a freelance writer for network television, not only for NBC, but also for ABC. He began contributing short stories to magazines. His first novel appeared in 1953 when he was 24 years old. Unquote. So, my words now, Levin was drafted into the Army Signals Corps, where he served from 1953 to 1955. This is a very curious assignment, and it comes at an interesting time for Levin's career. Now, the United States Army Signals Corps is a branch of the United States Army in charge of command and control, communication, and information systems for the entire armed forces. It was, and always has been, deeply intertwined with the National Security Agency, and at times it has run or worked closely with military intelligence, aviation, and weather forecasting. And it's these files, man! I'm not comfortable with this. Talking about sig int and signals and shit, and signals means code, you know? It was just lying there. Talking here about department heads and their names and shit, and then there's these other files that are just like... Numbers arrayed. Numbers and dates and numbers and numbers and dates and numbers and... I think that's the shit, man. The raw intelligence. Now, you can believe that Levin was writing for television on the side, or whether that was actually, you know, his main job. Since, not to be like, you know, a hard STEM guy or anything, but like... What else would he do for the Signals Corps? He had degrees in philosophy and English. And, precisely to that end, Levin wrote the script of the novel No Time for Sergeants for the film adaptation. The Gomer Pyle character was spun off from it, and the Andy Griffith show was itself sort of a spin-off of the Gomer Pyle character, so to speak. They're in the same cinematic universe, at least. Gomer Pyle, USMC. Starring Jim Neighbors as Gomer Pyle. Also starring Frank Sutton as Sergeant Carter. He also wrote a novel, A Kiss Before Dying, which was adapted shortly after his time in the Signals Corps. He wrote a number of plays in the 1960s, the most famous probably being the play Death Trap. Curiously, Levin was adjacent to the objectivist circle surrounding Ayn Rand. One of Rand's inner circles said that he had visited her several times, and probably saw her at one or two events. By no means very close to Ayn Rand or anything, but there were very interesting people floating around that milieu. 
including, of course, future chairman of the Federal Reserve, Alan Greenspan, mindfuck discordian Robert Anton Wilson, and a one numismatics science fiction and pedophile named Walter Breen. Ayn Rand was known to associate with Walter Breen, something that I've corroborated with other sources. But the physicist Jack Sarfati said, Breen was closely connected with people in Ayn Rand's circle, and he also said, it all connects somehow with Ayn Rand. I really need to do a deep dive on Ayn Rand's clique and what they were getting up to, because I think the story goes a lot deeper than we realize, but maybe for another day. To get back to Ira Levin, he wrote Rosemary's Baby in 1967. It sold 4 million copies, and some people credit it for the horror boom that would follow. Now, I'll skip summarizing the plot, partially because Lavenda, you know, sort of explained it up top, partially because I might do a deep dive down the road, and partially because you should also watch the movie, if you haven't. Now, the novel was immediately adapted by Roman Polanski. And like, yes, setting aside the fact that Polanski is definitely an occultist and a rapist, it's certainly one of the most influential horror films of all time. My buddies at Subliminal Jihad did a really good episode on the Dracularity, their term, of Roman Polanski, and they talked quite a bit about Rosemary's Baby. There is so much going on with Roman Polanski, both with the film itself and all of the broader stuff associated with it, like the Manson murders. Sharon Tate had starred in a film, Eye of the Devil, which had a Wiccan high priest and Aleister Crowley disciple as a technical consultant. Anton LaVey was said to be a technical consultant for Rosemary's Baby. Now what really trips me out is that Rosemary's Baby is set from August 1965 to June 1966. Which, like, come on man, that's 666. And it's set during real-world events, like most notably the Pope's actual visit to New York City, where he held Mass at Yankee Stadium. Rosemary's Baby was born nine months after the Pope's visit in the novel and film, which, lol. Now... Getting this information from Peter Lavenda again, there was actually an exorcism taking place in real life on the same day that the Pope held that Mass, which is the same day that, in the novel, Rosemary's Baby was conceived. We know about this through Malachi Martin's book, Hostage to the Devil. Though, here's what's really trippy. Hostage to the Devil would not be published until 1976. In other words, this wouldn't have been public knowledge, and there's no normal reason why Ira Levin would have known about this exorcism. Unless, you know, perhaps Ira Levin had some connections that his cover story, you know, wouldn't have afforded him. I'll get back to that, but let's talk about the exorcism. The exorcism that Malachi Martin talks about, that happens in the same city at the same time, was about... A Marianne K. That's the name in the book, but it's, you know, not her real name. She was supposed to be a gifted student of philosophy and physics. She was raised Roman Catholic, but she was said to have gotten into Satanism and the occult. She got possessed, 
as you do. But what's really spooky is what she is said to have said. According to Martin's account, Marianne had posited the existence of two levels of communication in every being. The conscious level of information exchange and an unconscious one, where there is a flow of influence from one being to another. This influence could be benign or malign, depending on whether the influence served to enhance the self of the receiver or to split it to damage it. Unquote. Shadow language, right? Now, as the story goes, Marianne Kay's depravity and demonic possession grew and grew, her sexual appetites grew to be insatiable, and her body odor grew noxious. Henry Lee Lucas, who was also obsessed with Satanism, was reported to have an insatiable sexual appetite and a horrific body odor. Now, Malachi Martin says that the exorcism was successful, but that the exorcist's mentor died the same hour that the possession ceased. But the exorcist's mentor was all the way over in Italy. Spooky, right? Malachi Martin is a whole can of worms, and it would be very interesting perhaps to do an episode on him, because by no means can we necessarily trust everything he's saying. But what is really weird is that there was a real exorcism that took place at the same time in the same city as the fictional evocation of Satan in Rosemary's Baby, and that Levin couldn't have known about it normally. Now, for me, the key elements to Rosemary's Baby as a novel would be the prominent location that the novel takes place in. In the novel, it's this gothic apartment building called the Bramford. In the film, they film it at the Dakota Apartments, which is a prestigious and spooky apartment building in real life with a long list of famous residents. It's probably most famous for being the home of John Lennon and Yoko Ono. Mark David Chapman shot John Lennon outside the Dakota in 1980. But yeah, other than the Dakota, the main character is Rosemary Woodhouse. And in the novel, she is filled with paranoia. She's groomed and gang-stalked by Satanists. And the novel explores the idea that children could be the spawn of Satan in some sense. Now, all of these are wild and spooky concepts, right? And, of course, the novel was quite influential in that regard. Like I said, I am going to read Rosemary's Baby and probably do an episode on it in the future. Definitely sound off in the comments if you would like that. But now it behooves me to mention what Ira Levin said about Rosemary's Baby. He said, I feel guilty that Rosemary's Baby led to the exorcist and the omen. A whole generation has been exposed and has more belief in Satan. I don't believe in Satan. And I feel that the strong fundamentalism we have would not be as strong if there had not been so many of these books. Of course I didn't send back any of the royalty checks. Unquote. Now, I'm not trying to turn Program to Chill into a explicitly Christian podcast, but I am not a huge fan of Levin writing a whole novel about Satanism and then being like, damn, I wish I didn't increase people's belief in Satan. When, like, if anything, it probably also increased people's belief in Satanism. Which, 
I would argue, is much more malignant. The farm had lost most all he had. His crop had failed, his stock went bad. He cursed his fate and wife and son. About to sell his soul for dollar from here, Levin wrote a dystopia called This Perfect Day, which I would describe as something between Brave New World and Atlas Shrugged, which, remember, he was friends with, or at least interacted with Ayn Rand. Now, I will be honest, This Perfect Day sounds really dumb, but then again, I am just not interested in dystopian fiction in general, but it's only one of two of his novels that were not adapted into films. Then, in 1972, 
Levin wrote The Stepford Wives, which like, whoo boy. Some of you might have seen the film, but the novel is about a couple who moves into a neighborhood, and in this neighborhood lives a former Disney engineer and some scientists. And they have been brainwashing their wives to be docile and compliant housewives, right? Now, there is some ambiguity as to whether these docile and compliant Stepford wives, whether they're robots in a literal or metaphorical sense, or whether the wife is imagining it or not. Like, there's some nuance there, but the stronger reading <laughs> based on the text is that they are literally robots. Because the Disney engineer in the novel went to UCLA and the California Institute of Technology and worked on audio animatronics at Disneyland. Very curious, right? In 1976, Ira Levin wrote the book The Boys from Brazil, which is about a Nazi hunter who tracks down Dr. Mengele in South America, only to find that Mengele had cloned Adolf Hitler 94 times. Now, of course, the thought process being that there would be only one that would take power, and 93 that wouldn't, which, of course, 93 is an occult number, right? And there is a curious mirror to the Rosemary's Baby plot in, you know, whether it's the child of Satan or Hitler, right? And the novel, of course, is full of vaguely accurate information about the Odessa network, which, you know, is like the network of Nazis in Latin America. And I say that in the sense that the network existed, not necessarily that they cloned Hitler, right? His next novel was called Sliver, which came out in 1991. And it was about a peeping Tom who has an, an entire apartment building rigged up with surveillance equipment in order to watch everyone. Creepy and spooky, right? And it makes me think of the Epstein residence in New York City making recordings. Also kind of reminds me of the film The Conversation or something, right? Now, Levin's last novel from 1997 was Son of Rosemary, wherein the main character from Rosemary's Baby, Rosemary Woodhouse, she wakes up from a coma that she had been in since the events of Rosemary's Baby, and she finds out that her son had been raised by that same coven of witches. Her son, now 33 years old, which, you know, that's the age that Jesus was, right, when he died, her son assures Rosemary that he has rebelled against the coven's wishes and is now a famous celebrity leader in charge of an international charitable organization, and that his goal is to achieve world peace. Rosemary suspects that her son unwittingly became the Antichrist. In the novel, her son has become the Antichrist, and he unleashes a deadly virus designed to kill off much of humanity. Now, there's much more to the plot, but of course that bit reminds me of current events, right? Now, for those keeping track, Levin wrote seven novels, and five were adapted into movies. Several of his plays were also adapted into movies. We will revisit Ira Levin in a minute. Cuts a man's heart, make 
So let's talk about William Peter Blatty, who was born in 1928 and who died in 2017. He was born in New York City to Lebanese immigrant parents, though they sounded a lot poorer than Ira Levin's parents. There are tons of parallels between the two, by the way. That should become obvious, and that's why I paired them together. But Blatty went to Brooklyn Preparatory Academy and then went to the Jesuit-run Georgetown University, on scholarship. People who follow me on Twitter may know my rule of thumb. Anyone who's ever taught, attended, or even been on the campus of Georgetown is a spook. Sorry I don't make the rules. All the more so for a Catholic who speaks Arabic, which that's William Peter Blatty. Now, Blatty got his master's in English literature, then he enlisted in the U.S. Air Force. This would have been roughly around the same time as Ira Levin. I could not for the life of me figure out what he was actually doing in the Air Force, but after he mustered out, he joined the United States Information Agency, and he worked for them as an editor in Beirut, Lebanon. I'm sorry, that's absolutely a cover story for doing spying work in Lebanon. Now, here's what the USIA does. It was an agency devoted to public diplomacy, which is to say, broadcasting, cultural exchanges, and the euphemistic non-broadcasting information functions. One of their own former directors wrote a memoir, one of the former directors of the United States Information Agency. He said, The U.S. government ran a full-service public relations organization, the largest in the world, about the size of 20 of the biggest U.S. commercial PR firms combined. Its full-time professional staff of more than 10,000, spread out among some 150 countries, burnished America's image and trashed the Soviet Union 2,500 hours a week with a Tower of Babel, B-A-B-B-L-E, comprised of more than 70 languages to the tune of over 2 billion a year. The biggest branch of this propaganda machine was the USIA, unquote. Now, if he was doing what USIA was said to be doing, that would still be spy work. And USIA, like I said, is often a cover. But Peter Lavenda states that William Peter Blatty was an intelligence officer specializing in psychological warfare. More trustworthy than Peter Lavenda, in my opinion, the magazine Counterspy stated that William Peter Blatty worked for the Central Intelligence Agency in Lebanon. After this stint in, you know, the Middle East, 
Blatty then went on to do public relations work for Loyola University and the University of Southern California. While he was working in PR, he appeared as a contestant on the Groucho Marx quiz show, You Bet Your Life. By the way, I love Groucho Marx, but like, we gotta tell the story like it is. So he appeared on the show, and he won $10,000, which was enough money for him to quit his job and write full-time. And he never had to work again other than writing. Let's not forget, though, that there were multiple widespread and quite public quiz show scandals. My personal theory, with no proof whatsoever, is that he was allowed to win in order to win enough money to write full-time. There's no proof of that, but again, that's my theory. Dear listeners, you may or may not be able to hear the rain as I record, but hopefully it sounds good rather than distracting. We'll see. This is live experimentation. Now, William Peter Blatty wrote, he wrote, John Goldfarb, please come home. He wrote that in 1963. It was a spoof of the Francis Gary Powers incident, which, you know, you know, there was a lot going on with that. William Peter Blatty wrote the novel Twinkle Twinkle Killer Kane in 1966. He later rewrote it in 1987 as The Ninth Configuration. The plot centers on an insane asylum in the Pacific Northwest, which housed various military personnel, including a mad astronaut. In the novel, they discuss how psychiatrists often go crazy and have some of the highest suicide rates of any profession, along with dentists. I know you can't see me, dear listener, but I am smiling. Then William Peter Blatty wrote his most famous work, The Exorcist, which he published in 1971. The novel was inspired by a real case of demonic possession from 1949. Interestingly, the novel takes place in Washington, D.C., near the Georgetown University campus. The novel tells the story of a young girl named Reagan, who is possessed by an Assyrian demon named Pazuzu. Now, according to an interview with Blatty, about halfway through writing The Exorcist, he said, I knew it was going to be a success. He said this to People magazine. Blatty said, I couldn't wait to finish it and become famous. Which I mean, if we're talking about shadow language here, the surface level reading might have been that he knew that the novel was good and that it would be a hit. The subconscious reading might be that he knew that it was already planned to be a success. Which, I mean, we'll see. But, dear listeners, do you want to get weird? Like, you want to get really weird? So, Mark David Chapman, who was John Lennon's assassin, he used to volunteer at a YMCA. The nickname that he chose to go by was Nemo, like Captain Nemo from the Jules Verne novel 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Curiously, one of the Jack the Ripper suspects used to use Nemo as a stage name and in letters to the press. What does Nemo mean? In Latin, it means no one. Then, in the Exorcist novel, 
Father Karras asks the demonically possessed Reagan, Who are you? And Reagan screamed in some weird language he couldn't understand. Father Karras had recorded the interaction and was trying to figure it out. Another priest pointed out that it was in English backwards. When played backwards, Reagan responded to the question, Who are you? by responding, No one. I am no one, in reverse English. And, by the way, Alistair Crowley recommended to practitioners that they should train themselves to think backwards by listening to records in reverse. I know that, like, obsessing over backmasking sounds like some right-wing Christian crank thing to do, but this is something that, you know, Crowley was into, so I don't think that it's exactly a stretch, right? Let's talk about one or two more curious exorcist connections. Here's a quote. I saw and think The Exorcist was the best satirical comedy that I have ever seen. Who said that? That's right, The Zodiac. In a letter to the San Francisco Chronicle, 1974, January 30th, which just so happens to be Candlemas, on the flip side, here's another quote about The Exorcist, from Blatty himself. He said, I can't regret The Exorcist, because I always believe that there is a divine hand everywhere. Now, my words here, I agree that there is a divine hand in general, but I am not at all certain that writing The Exorcist would be the appropriate way to convey the divine hand's existence. Also, a divine hand, like a hidden hand that smacks of Freemasonry, which sort of freaks me out. So, not sure I like where Blatty was going with this, right? Finally, William Peter Blatty actually wrote and directed The Exorcist 3. Like, it's extremely common for there to be a high-profile horror movie, and then a whole bunch of subsequent movies in the series that are somehow much worse than the original. But... Some of these sequels, by virtue of being so shitty, sometimes get some very curious plots and really interesting things sometimes come out of these more trash horror movies. But The Exorcist 3, by all means, was not probably one of the one of these trash movies. Like it was the the author who both wrote and directed it, so very curious. Now in The Exorcist 3, they pretty much treat The Exorcist 2 like it didn't happen, more or less ignoring it, but in The Exorcist 3, it's set 15 years after the first film, and it follows a cop investigating demonic murders in Georgetown that are supposed to be similar to the Gemini. The Gemini is supposed to be a fictional deceased serial killer loosely based on the Zodiac Killer. Notice that William Peter Blatty and The Exorcist 3 is linking demonic possession with serial murder. Now, let's keep getting weird. Let's talk about Jeffrey Dahmer. Agent Wrestler, who is one of the behavioral science unit colleagues of Agent Douglas, he is in the Mindhunter TV show, he interviewed Jeffrey Dahmer and he asked him about his occult beliefs. 
and I quote from the FBI transcript. Dahmer was asked if he was involved in the occult, and Dahmer stated that he started dabbling in the occult and reading, and his favorite movie was The Exorcist 3 because it helped fit into his fantasy. Dahmer stated that in the movie Exorcist 3, the guy could create illusions, and Dahmer felt that he himself could create illusions, unquote. Now, what kind of illusions do you think Dahmer could create or think he could create? I'm not at all sure, but I am very interested. Now, we know more about Jeffrey Dahmer because of the account of Tracy Edwards. Tracy Edwards would have been one of Dahmer's victims, but he managed to get away. Edwards was invited to Dahmer's apartment. There, they drank and started to have a sexual encounter. Dahmer handcuffed Edwards. Initially, the handcuffing was consensual, but then Dahmer brought out a knife. Dahmer had also drugged Edwards' drink earlier. Now, while they waited for the drugs to knock Tracy Edwards out, Dahmer demanded that they watch a videotape, The Exorcist 3. I quote from Lavenda here, Dahmer watched the film intently, at times rocking back and forth, chanting in a humming sound, and seemed to go into a trance. Then a personality change would take place during the parts of the film that, that depicted possession sequences. At this time, Dahmer himself would become aggressive and demand that Edwards place the other handcuff on his wrist. Then, as the film possession sequence would change to something more mundane, Dahmer's mood also shifted, and he began to complain about his life and his loneliness. Eventually, Edwards escaped through a combination of luck and intelligence. He played Dahmer's moods, and in a moment of inattention, managed to hit Dahmer with enough force that Dahmer fell to the side, allowing Edwards to escape out into the night, running as fast as he could. The mood changes may indicate some form of dissociation on Dahmer's part, such as we have already discussed, although Dahmer never presented himself as a sufferer from MPD or DID at the time of his arrest or in subsequent medical examinations. Indeed, psychiatrists were never able to completely analyze Dahmer, as Dahmer himself complained. They could point to his necrophilia, because he would have sex with the corpses of his victims as they were dismembered, copulating with them or even drawing slits into their chest for this purpose, or his other symptoms but they were never able to integrate these symptoms into a single diagnosis. FBI profiler Ressler would say that Dahmer represented a new phenomenon, and partially blamed Hollywood, even though Agent Ressler had himself been a technical advisor on the film The Silence of the Lambs. Ressler saw The Exorcist III as some kind of triggering mechanism for Dahmer, as something that gave the killer a kind of validation. Unquote. And it wasn't just Jeffrey Dahmer. Danny Rowling, who is known as the Gainesville Ripper, who is said to have killed eight people, he named his evil personality Gemini, after The Exorcist Three. And, you know, if we want to play this game indefinitely, we could bring up Wayne Williams and the Gemini connections there, right? Now, what is up with The Exorcist Three? 
Well, the legendary letterboxed poster PD187 wrote an extremely good essay on it, and they cite the following article. The psychoterror was conducted through the use of subliminal sub-audio sounds in the soundtrack. The screams of slaughtered pigs, the buzzing of angry bees, and sub-visual images in the movie frames. The pace of the priest, Father Karras as a grotesque death mask, presented at sound and speed levels too low and too fast for the ear and eye to consciously absorb." Unquote. PD-187 also quotes the great Christopher Knowles, who said, "...the range of effects that The Exorcist seemed to produce in its initial run sound very much like the result of sonic weaponry. In this case, the use of infrasound." From an article entitled, The Psychoacoustic Effect of Infrasonic, Sonic, and Ultrasonic Frequencies Within Non-Lethal Military Warfare Techniques. My words here. If this makes you think of Havana Syndrome, why, keep that in mind. Back to Christopher Knowles, quote, the term infrasound defines itself as the inaudible frequency range below the human bandwidth of about 20 hertz. Beyond the use of infrasound detection, this frequency range, of which is inaudible to us, has been researched throughout the decades to investigate its effects on the human body, one of which is its application to military usage. Throughout the 20th and 21st century, there has been a vast amount of research collected and interest gained in the use of non-lethal weapons, which are intended to immobilize or impair targets without causing permanent or severe damage to the human body. As technologies have developed, it's apparent that military bodies within the world seek to create weapons resulting in wars without death and the effects of these weapons seem to sync up quite nicely with the symptoms many viewers of The Exorcist complained of during its first release. Exposure to levels above 80 decibels between 0.5 Hz and 10 Hz, causing these possible vibrational movements within the ear's function, are said to cause psychological changes such as, such as fear, sorrow, depression, anxiety, nausea, chest pressure, and hallucinations. It is the result of this effect in the middle ear that cites as being discovered by military personnel during World War I and World War II. Given that The Exorcist was released in 1973, we have a smoking gun on the field testing of psychoacoustic weapons and their intended emotional and psychological effects that very same year. The effect of emotional and psychological change as a result of infrasonic exposure can later be found during the Second Indochina War. In 1973, the United States deployed the Urban Funk Campaign, which was a psychoacoustic attack during the war with the intention of altering mental states of their enemies. The device utilized both infrasonic and ultrasonic frequencies, which emitted high decibel oscillations 
from a mounted helicopter onto the Vietnamese ground troops. Unquote. Let's wrap up by talking about a more obscure author, David St. John, who wrote an occult thriller called The Coven, which was, among other things, a thinly veiled attack on the Kennedy family. Those are always interesting to consider in light of following events, right? Now, the book follows a senator and his wife, who got involved with a secret cult in Washington, D.C., which was based around an African priestess and her magical powers. The hero of the novel is a detective named John Galt. Yes, literally like John Galt of Atlas Shrugged, though spelled with a U, like a A-U, but yes. <laughs> like, it is also tied to Ayn Rand. Now, not that much happens in this novel, overall. But the plot prominently features a female murderer who goes into a trance during an occult ceremony in the, in the basement of an abandoned house in Washington, D.C. The novel also goes out of its way to mention that this female murderer was wearing a wig. Mentions that several times, right? And there's a scene with this character set in Wilkes Bar, which just so happens to be Candy Jones' hometown, right? Now that sounds spooky and weird, right? But who was David St. John? David St. John was a pen name for E. Howard Hunt, the former CIA agent, Bay of Pigs action officer, and Watergate plumber. Just interesting to think about, right? Let's wrap things up. So while the spirit of the 1960s was putrefying, certain occult themes were being pushed into the mainstream. As we know, there is nothing natural or, or organic about this. Ira Levin and William Peter Blatty were both spies who wrote occult novels that were then both immediately turned into high-profile, well-made films. None of this is an accident. We know that the military has a lot of control in Hollywood, more than most people realize. The CIA has a lot of control in publishing. Levin was in the Army Signals Corps, that's some high-level quasi-NSA type shit. And there are multiple sources saying William Peter Blatty was CIA. Now, much like the Satanic Panic, I think that there are false disingenuous actors on both sides of the wave of occult media in the 1960s and 70s. But why? What, interest, what interests would this serve? Why would they want to control both sides? Before the Vietnam War really, like, kicked off, the CIA was using a man named Dr. Thomas Anthony Dooley III, he was a physician and a humanitarian, quote-unquote. The CIA used him to carry out a psychological operation in Vietnam by telling the Catholic population that the Virgin Mary had departed from the North, which of course was the communist-controlled part of the country, and that Christ had gone to the South. They provoked a mass exodus of Vietnamese Catholics from the North of Vietnam to the south of Vietnam, which was the United States puppet regime. Dr. Dooley was a key component to this exodus. Dr. Dooley also wrote a book called Deliver Us From Evil, 
which was naturally a bestseller. The book talked about the atrocities carried out by the Viet Minh. Dooley wrote about the Viet Minh jamming chopsticks into the ears of children to keep them from hearing the Lord's Prayer, mutilating Catholic instructors. He also said that the Viet Minh pounded nails into the heads of Catholic priests. He wrote that Ho Chi Minh's forces disemboweled more than a thousand women in Hanoi. Now, literally none of this happened. These were particularly gruesome things that he just made up. Now, the really cool part is that, from what it looks like, Dooley was actually a closeted homosexual being blackmailed by the Navy. And that him writing all of this and helping do this psychological operation was part of the deal. Still, when President John F. Kennedy launched the Peace Corps, he cited Tom Dooley because, you know, Kennedy was a piece of shit. I should really do a deep dive on Tom Dooley. I think that would be rewarding. You can read about some of this in the magazine Counter Spy, but I would love to do an episode down the road, maybe. The point is, there are Catholic psyops. There are religious psyops. There were comparable operations in the Soviet Union that played off of Orthodox peasants' fears. There were similar psyops in Cuba. The Satanic Panic was most likely one of these psychological operations. So was QAnon. My point is not to emphasize that demonic possession is real. I happen to think that it is, but that is not the takeaway that I would most want my listeners to take. My key point, and of course this is my opinion, is that we should be aware that there is always a game being run on both sides for and against Satanism, and both sides of this whole thing are managed. It's a wilderness of mirrors, because as Joan Didion said, in the late 1960s, the paranoia was fulfilled. Today I used, of course, Joan Didion's The White Album. I referenced Peter Lavenda's Sinister Forces trilogy. I used a variety of New York Times and Guardian articles on these authors. The Von Mises Institute article on Ira Levine, which lol. I referred to Malachi Martin's Hostage to the Devil, to the Stepford Wives novel, the Counterspy article on The Exorcist, as well as the one on Vietnam. I referred to PD-187's entry for The Exorcist 3. If you're not reading PD-187, why, I highly recommend it. And of course, Tom Dooley's piece of non-fiction, air quotes, Deliver Us from Evil. Thank you for listening, dear listener. You are already on the Patreon side, so just let people know about the show. See you next week, and God bless. A gruesome discovery in Milwaukee, Wisconsin today. It may turn out to be one of the nation's worst mass murder cases ever.
Yeah.